scripture reading comes from the gospel according to John. We're going to be reading John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Hear the word of the Lord. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. This is in our order of worship. Traditionally a time that it's labeled the prayer of for God's healing and blessing through his word. And it's a time in our congregation, in our worship, when we remember that we're priests, we're a congregation of priests. During the, during the week, uh, we're out there in the world, and we're called to be in a way to call, we're called to be prophets. Prophets take God's word to the world, and that's what we do. Jesus has called us to be salt and light out there to what the way we live, the way we speak, what we do, what we say is salt and light out in that world for Jesus. We want people to see the gospel, sinners though we be, to see the gospel through our lives. That's what this week has been about. We ought to pray daily, Father, cause me to be salt and light. Wherever I go, wherever I walk, wherever I am this day, but when we come back in here, when we return to worship, we're priests. Just as God called us to be prophets and take his word out into the world, he's called us to be priests and bring the world around us, our children, our neighbors, to bring the folks around us before him in prayer, to bring each other before him him in prayer and we do that week after week after week and we've seen God answer prayers in such a marvelous way 
in the life of Christ's covenant. And this morning, uh, to look out and see Phil and Sally Halley here. What an answer to prayer. What an awesome answer to prayer. And then to see Dan and Eileen Wood there. And that, that is an applause to the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. So, priests, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for answered prayer. We thank you, Father, for Phil and Sally here this morning, for Dan and Eileen, as they represent your goodness and your answers to our prayers. And we continue to pray. Oh, Father, we're so thankful for what you've done for Phil and all the improvements and the strength of soul that you've given him, the strength of heart that you've given him. Father, we pray that you'll continue to bring healing to his body. Restore movement, Father. We pray that he will continue physically to improve. But most of all, Father, we pray that you will bless him spiritually. Give him a strength of heart and strength of soul that will be a witness to all who see him and hear him. Father, bless Sally. Thank you for the strength that you have given her. And we pray that Phil would be an encouragement to her and she would be an encouragement to him. Oh, Father, thank you for Eileen and Dan. We pray, Father, that you'll continue to bring healing to her body. You know all about that, Father. We don't have to tell you how to do that. Father, we just pray you would bring healing to her, strengthen her body and soul. And I pray that Dan will be an encouragement to her and she will be an encouragement to Dan. And now, our Father, as we open your word, John Sartell cannot teach. He can't preach, so it will make any difference here this morning. No man that stands behind this desk is able to do that. So right now, as we always do, we bow before you. Father, we're your children, and we're just asking you as our Father, teach us. Tell us more of the story. Take us to a greater depth. Change us, Father. Maybe some of us for the first time. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This is just another story from the Gospels. It's very tempting. to. It's one that is not mentioned often. It's not one of the, quote, great miracles. But this week, I have been reminded that even in a passage like this, and I told Terry as we drove in this morning, I said, you know, this, this passage teaches lessons that we desperately need to hear. 
There's not a person in this room, including this speaker, that does not need the great lessons of this passage. And so instead of saying, well, it's just another, let's hear what John has to say about this. It's just another story. I want you to look at this passage that's not so well known and ask the Father really to apply the lessons of this passage to you. They're huge. I need to hear them. What makes us pray desperate prayers? Jesus had been in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. He went home to Galilee by way of the shortest route going through the province of Samaria. We have seen on three previous Sundays that Jesus stopped off. He interrupted his journey to stay in the small town of Sychar for two days. He stayed there because the people wanted to hear more from this man who claimed to be the Messiah. Then he renewed his trek northward to Galilee. The route he chose took him to Cana in the hill country of Galilee. And there he would probably drop down to the seashore town of Capernaum where he had moved during this first year of his ministry. He was no longer living in Nazareth. He was living in Capernaum. But his route back, his route back to Galilee took him into the hill country to Cana. There's an ironic statement made by John that seems to be a contradiction as this scene is introduced. And again, it's easily passed over, but we can't. Jesus was returning home to Galilee. That's where he was from. And John remarks that Jesus said in verse 44, a prophet has no honor in his hometown, in his home country. Now, most of us have said that. It's become a cliche of prophets without honor, except a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown. Well, why did Jesus say that? Why did he say a prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown? We can understand it as a universal truth. You know, one of you may grow up to be president of the United States. But with the people of Memphis, the people in your neighborhood, you'll always be Luke or John or Alice or Mary or Ann, who went to the local elementary school, the local junior high school, the local high school, and your parents live right down the street. That's who you be. That's who you will be to the people around you. That's what Jesus was saying. When Jesus stood in the synagogue, and you know this story, when he stood in the synagogue up in Nazareth and claimed to be the Messiah of Israel before the hometown folks, the members, what did the members of that synagogue say? Uh, is this not the son of Joseph and Mary who live right down the street? We've known him since he's a baby. What's he doing claiming to be the Messiah? That's blasphemy. And the, the, those neighbors actually 
seized him and took him to a cliff near the town. They were going to throw him off of the cliff to his death. So that's probably one reason Jesus had uttered the comment. But look at what John says. I'm not just straining at gnats here. Look at what John says. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now that's his home folks, and they welcomed him. Now that's an odd thing to say right after you've suggested that Jesus was not respected by the home folks. But it is understandable if you read the next phrase. Look at it. Why did they welcome him? We read, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the great feast. He was coming from that feast. Many of them had gone to the feast also. And John gave the reason they wanted to see him. They had been at the feast in Jerusalem and seen the many miracles that occurred just by fiat. He commanded and it happened. Look back at John 2, 23, when he was at the feast. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. His name was becoming known all over Israel. He was surpassing the reputation of John the baptizer. No man in the history of the world had done what Jesus was doing, and they simply wanted to see more. If we had been in Galilee, we would have said, hey, he's coming back. Let's go see. Let's go see. They had been watching the road expecting his return to Galilee. And you can see them. You can see a crowd running when they heard that Jesus was nearby. What will he do next? Now, the reason I've taken time to explain those two ironic sentences is that they are directly related to what transpires next in this scene. So John tells us this scene takes place in Cana, the town where Jesus, what had happened in Cana? You know that, the wedding feast where he changed the water into wine at the beginning of his ministry. That's where this happened. A well-known member of Herod's staff, remember Herod was the governor, the king of Galilee, not Judea, but Galilee. This was his province. He ruled under the authority of Rome. So this member of Herod's court lived in Capernaum. Jesus had moved to Capernaum just before he left for Jerusalem for the feast. This man of Herod's court knows about Jesus and his miraculous power to heal. He's heard about this. His son was at the point of death. Look at verse 47. He wasn't just sick. He was near death. He had heard that Jesus had returned to Galilee, that he was in Cana. He could not risk waiting. His son was near death. So he had traveled the 16 miles to Capernaum or from Capernaum to Cana for his son might die before Jesus got there. He was desperate to save his son. John introduces the immediate scene by saying in verse 46 that he came again to Cana in Galilee where he made the water wine. Now stop for a minute. It had just been a couple of pages back 
that John told the whole story. So why does he mention it again? Why does he? We already know that. Why does he mention that miracle again? Well, John is an artist with a pen painting powerful details that many others would pass over. Here is Jesus, probably within a few yards, maybe as far as half a mile away from where that wonderful party was, that wedding feast where he took water and changed it into the greatest wine that had ever been made. So you have that. John reminding you of the party and the feast. And here, in contrast, is a member of Herod's court with a dying son, desperate. Look up the word desperate in the dictionary this afternoon. Feeling or showing or involving a hopeless sense that a situation is so bad as to be impossible to deal with. He's a member, he's a powerful man. He's a member of the king's court. But all of his position and all of his power, he can't do a thing about his son except go beg a rabbi, a preacher, to heal him. Some of us have been there in our families, haven't we? In fact, what I've said so far has hurt or still hurts. Your son or daughter, husband, wife, dying. There's nothing you could do. You're helpless. So what did John want us to understand in this desperate situation? Why does he remind us of that wonderful wedding feast? What does that have to do with it? People, it is vitally huge. It's important because the Jesus who made the wine for the large party is the same Jesus who's there for us in the most dire of circumstances. Question. Let's understand this. Let's just stop and understand it. When do you seek Jesus the most? I can tell you when I do. When I'm at the end of my rope in a desperate situation, that's when I seek him the most, in all honesty. Like the royal representative ran to Jesus in Cana, I run to him for the same reason when I'm in dire states. When all is well, when there's health, when there's food, when there's wine for the party, I don't seek Jesus with the same intensity. And there's something wrong with that. John was putting these two miracles side by side as they happened in the same location. In two situations that were different to the extreme. A wedding feast and a man crying and pleading for the life of his son. What a contrast. The first was a party. The second was when a young boy was dying. Jesus was an integral part of both scenes. Yet, 
we don't run to Jesus with the same desperate, the same desperation in the good times as we do in the bad times. I want to stop and think about that. You want to say what I want to say. Well, that's understandable. Really? That's not what Scripture says. For some time now, I've told you this before. I have been praying that God would teach me to live a thankful life. Now, we're apt to think, no, we're, we're thankful. You know, good people are thankful. If you're good people, if you're good people, you're thankful. And probably if I'd taken a poll and when people, when you were coming in this morning, I'd just ask, hey, are you a thankful person? Most of us would have said, what I would have said, I would have said, yes, I'm, I'm a thankful person. Yet, as I read scripture, I'm forced to see that I'm not so thankful. All through scripture, we see the constant command of God to live thankfully. God says thanksgiving should be a constant characteristic of every prayer, especially the prayer of desperation. Come in thanksgiving. You know, when we, naturally, when we think of a desperate prayer, we don't think of starting a desperate prayer off with thanksgiving. But look at Philippians 6 and 7. 4, 6, and 7. I'm sorry. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Mark it down. Memorize it. How does it start? Do not be anxious about anything. You see that? A prayer of desperation is always prayed in what? Anxiety. And he says, don't be anxious. In contrast to that, he says, but in everything... Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let requests be made known to your God or known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. We could spend days breaking down those two verses. They're so deep, so profound. When is the last time you thank God for the salt on your table? You know, salt not only brings flavor to our foods, but if you don't have salt, you die. My parents, when I was younger, I loved salt, still do. And my parents would, you know, they would get on me. I would look at my plate and I'd salt everything before I ever tasted it. And they would say, John, you haven't even tasted that yet. You're salting. And then I found out, I didn't have an answer to them until I found out that if you didn't have salt, you'd die. And I'm saying to my parents, I'm just making sure I'm not going to die today. And that's what I told them. I've begun listing the smallest blessings of life in my prayers. Start listing them. Smallest blessings day when you go home and eat lunch look at all the ingredients on the table name them thank God for everyone thank God for the taste buds to enjoy them and start looking at details 
when you do that, you'll begin to understand that there should be a party of celebration every day in our homes. Yet most of my life, I've not verbally and existentially celebrated these things. I looked at them and I took them for granted. I looked at them as if maybe I'd provided. Those are just everyday provisions. I deserve these things. Ten thousand blessings a day go unnoticed in your life, in my life, and you know that's true. And Scripture saying here that there should be a desperation in our prayers about Thanksgiving. I don't have the salt unless you give it to me, Father. There won't be food on my table this evening unless you provide it. I dare not let these blessings pass without expressing my gratitude. Jesus is there providing the feast. And that same Jesus, John is saying, with this story, is there in the direst of circumstances. And we're more apt to seek him out in those situations, in our desperation. In his desperation, what was this man seeking? Would this man have, he was seeking Jesus to heal his son. His son was sick. Would this man have made that trip and sought Jesus out just to hear him preach? Probably not. Would he have run up to Canaan to see Jesus, this man who was claiming to be the son of God and son of man? If his son, had, if his son hadn't been dying, would he have been up there? Probably not. What drove him to Jesus? His son was dying and there was evidence that Jesus could heal him. Did he come running to Jesus when he heard that Jesus had claimed to be Messiah? Jesus is making that claim far and wide. But we don't hear from this man until his child was dying. How guilty are we of that? about that next time you're hit in the stomach just a real gut punch and life is desperate and you're about to pray ask yourself when's the last time I prayed Has it just been a continuous thing in my life? Do I pray desperate prayers about God's goodness? Jesus' answer to the man requests, his answer seems harsh. Look at verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I don't think Jesus was saying that just to this man. Remember, the people were waiting on him when he returned to Cana from Judea. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. We read it this morning. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had gone to the feast too. So he was speaking to the man and to the crowd. But even then, it seems a bit unfair. He himself, Jesus himself had said, why was he doing the miracles? It just wasn't in compassion. It was to demonstrate that he was who he claimed to be. Only God could do, only the Son of God could do what he was doing. 
to speak by fiat, and it just happened. And what does he say? You're just here for the signs. This man comes running, and he said, you're here for the signs. You're here to see what I'm going to do next. There are Christians who constantly seek signs from God. Weekly, on a weekly basis, I encounter Christians who will reference some sign that they believe came from God. And sometimes, frankly, it seems really shaky to me. But they, we've just got to have miracles. I was reading a Christian magazine about an evangelical group that was meeting in a well-known hotel in a large city. It was type of a Christian convocation. Now, this is, this is what happened. And here's this picture that is the theme of the article. In the picture of the hotel taken during the stay, there seems to be a halo around the top of the building. And that's what they said. They claimed that this was God's blessing. This was a halo of clouds around the building. It could have been. But then the article went on to list all the other miracles that happened during the week. The entire article was about signs and miracles. I wonder what they would have said if there had been no sin, no halo, nothing happened like that. What if there had just been some powerful preaching that started acts of compassion, that started a movement that would bring food to an impoverished city? Well, but that's not a sign. Well, that brings us. What happens when Jesus refuses our desperate prayers for healing? Sometimes Jesus says no to our request for relief. And immediately, I will take you to when the Father himself, when Jesus prayed a prayer in desperation like this, he said, Father, take this cup from me. Utterly desperate. And the father said, no. Did Jesus get up and stomp out of the garden? Did Christians, strong Christians, not pray in Russia and China? Did they not pray to be kept from persecution and prison and death? But Jesus in China and Russia allowed the persecution and the prison and the death sometimes we've heard people say if God was there he wouldn't have let my baby die stop godly parents In every generation for the last 2,000, 4,000 years have come to God. The God who is there, the Father in heaven, and ask his healing. A desperate prayer. Hear my child. And God refused. 
Does this mean that Jesus is powerless in these dire circumstances? You know better. There's not a square inch of this universe where he does not rule right now. There's not a millisecond of time that he does not rule. People will say, well, if he's there and he rule, he must not care, must not love me. What does Scripture say? What's the greatest once and for all illustration of the love of God for you and me? He points to Calvary. In Romans. Isn't it here is the greatest demonstration? Here, there's no other, there's no other. There's no other event in history that shows the love of God like the death of Jesus at Calvary. No. You don't dare say, well, God's not on the throne. And you don't dare say, I'm so important. I'm so good. I'm so holy. I'm so perfect that God is accountable to me. If he doesn't do what I say, I'm walking off. When we pray for our child to live, to be spared from the awful results of this disease, do we pray with the same desperation that that child would know Jesus? Some of us parents, of us as parents, ought to be ashamed. When our children have gotten desperately ill, we've shown far more care for their physical health than we have for their spiritual health. And people, there is a lot worse disease than the physical disease that children would get. That disease with which we're born, a heart alien to God, a heart that will shake its fist in the face of God himself. A heart that will refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is an eternal death that is the much greater danger. Maybe a family member is facing economic disaster. We become desperate in our prayers. Are we just as desperate in our prayers that this person raises his family or her family on the strong foundation of Scripture and God's Word and builds their lives upon Jesus Christ? After Jesus makes this confrontational statement, the governmental, the governmental official does not retreat. In his desperation, he presses Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus simply responds, You've got to love this. After everything Jesus did, he turns to him and said, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Wow. He took Jesus at his word, but the story does not end there. John doesn't end the story there. On his way home, his servants met him to tell him that his child was recovering. His child's not going to die. 
And he says, what hour did the recovery begin? It's right there before you in the scripture. And they said the seventh hour. And he laughed. That's the exact time that Jesus spoke and said, your son will live. But then the story doesn't end there. We read the most important words of the story. And he himself believed in all his household. That does not mean, that's not saying that he believed his son would live. No, he already believed that. This was a profession of faith, a profession of faith in Jesus. And he himself believed in all his household. Now, several of the disciples lived in and around Capernaum. John obviously knew this man. He knew this man subsequent to this encounter with Jesus. John was saying, I know this man. I know his family. When he heard that his son was recovering, he believed. He believed what? Not that his son had been healed. He believed Jesus. And not only he believed, but his whole household believed. He was talking about saving faith. So what's the greatest miracle here? Jesus spoke and restored the boy's physical health. No, that's not the greatest. But there's something greater. The man and his family received eternal life. What had been the theme with Nicodemus? Salvation. What had been the theme with the woman at the well? Salvation. What's the theme as he comes home to Cana? This man's salvation. In Luke 10, Jesus has sent out out 72 of his disciples into the surrounding countryside on short-term mission trips. He said, preach and teach. And they went out and they preached and teach. And when they came back, they came back shouting, dancing, singing. They said, we've never seen anything like it. They said, we even saw miracles. We even had authority over the demonic world. And so here these disciples are rejoicing, giving each other a high five and said, Jesus, I can't, we can't believe this. What did Jesus say to them? What did he say to them? Look at, look at Luke 10, 20, and we're done. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The greatest miracle of that day was not that Jesus healed the man's son. The greatest miracle was that the man and his family believed and followed Jesus and their lives were forever changed and their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, we come to this table. We come to this table now not celebrating that Jesus has healed our children or members of our family from some awful disease, physical disease. We come to this table celebrating a much greater miracle. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. We actually love him more than we love our children. We love him more than we love our parents. We come celebrating the life and death and resurrection and salvation of Jesus Christ at this table. Amen. Our hymn of preparation as we come to the table is a hymn about our salvation. Let's sing, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us and all of God's people said